Thank you. That's, uh, that's one of those karaoke claps. I appreciate that. I'm excited to be able to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, we're starting a new series. This series is called What to Make of It. And as we get ready to go into 2021, I think back to this time last year. And we really had no idea what was coming, did we? We really didn't know. And if you had told us what was coming, we probably wouldn't have believed you. And as the years gone on, obviously we have adjusted and, and learned as we have gone on how to deal with this thing. But what we see that's happening in our country and in our churches is that the, the widening cultural divide in our country is moving into the church. Do you see it? Do you all see it? The church is losing unity because the conflict on the outside is coming to the inside. And as we go into 2021, we think it's important that we address these things. And that we address them not from the standpoint of opinion. What does Pastor Blake think? What does Pastor Brian think? What does the pastor down the road think? We're not really worried about opinions. We're not really thinking about opinions. What we want to do is we want to go to God's word. Because we believe that the unity of the church is the most important thing in the world. The night before Jesus died in John chapter 17, he prayed before he went to the cross that his church that he had instituted on this earth would be unified. <coughs> and as we look at what's happening in our world, we see that the church is less unified today than it was a year ago. And that is a concern. So this morning, I want to bring to you a message called Trademark. And that title will make sense in a few minutes, I hope. I want to bring to you a message called Trademark, and I want to bring this to you because we believe, and I believe this morning after much prayer and much study, that it is important that we get what we know to be true, not from our opinions, not from the six o'clock news, not from a, a politician, but from the Word of God. The Word of God is the source for all the truth we need, and that's where we're going to go to get it. So we're going to go there, and we're going to talk today about two things that I believe are preventing many Christians like you and I from entering this cultural war. We're going to talk about the passivity of the Christian today, the problem of passivity, and we're also going to talk about the problem of conflicting viewpoints. We're going to talk about the problem of conflicting messages that we are receiving. Now, I'm going to go ahead and warn you. This message may be more political than what you're comfortable with. I wonder, does anybody just love mixing church and politics? Church, politics, family, man, that's fun, right? Get all that together, we have a good time. I'll be the first to tell you that I do not like mixing church and politics. I prefer them separate. I believe the writers of the First Amendment of the Constitution also preferred them separate, which is why they amended the Constitution to say that the government has no right to infringe on the free worship of the church. It's better when they are apart. But I'll tell you a story. Earlier this summer, when the weather started to warm up, all the cockroaches from the outside started coming to the inside at the Jackson household. Now, I'm not a fan of cockroaches by any means. I don't seek them out. But when they show up, I had to deal with them. Now, they didn't bother me all that bad. My hope was that they would sort of just go away. Like they would figure out that I can barely afford to feed the children I've got, much less feed all of them. You with me? I hope they would go away. But they didn't go away. They multiplied. And as I would try to stomp them out as I would find them, eventually the problem grew when my wife found them. And when she found them, 
The problem became so immediately obvious that we had to take action. And the action involved calling people who could help us with it, moving everything we own out of our house so they could come in and spray and draw a line that the cockroaches could no longer cross. Then we could move everything back into our house. It was like moving without the joy of a new home. It was just moving our stuff out and back in again. It was expensive, it was time-consuming, and it was abundantly unpleasant. But the problem had entered from the outside to the inside. So once the problem got to the inside, the problem had to be addressed on the inside so we could go back to the outside. You with me? Politics and church historically have not mixed well. And it's been wise and it's been appropriate and it's been comfortable to keep them separate. And I'm not going to endorse a political party today. I'm not going to endorse a candidate today. I'm not going to tell you how to think or how to feel. What I'm going to do is tell you that the problem on the outside in the political world has infiltrated the church. It's come to the inside. Now, what we can do is we can be quiet and we can stay still and hope not to agitate. But as we do that, the problem will grow. The problem will grow. When we were told that churches should no longer meet out of the concern for public safety, my initial response was, that's correct. And when Pastor Brian immediately said, no, we're going to continue meeting, I actually, between me and you and anybody on the internet listening, I thought he was a little crazy. I thought he was being a little brash. Because I thought, you know what? 15 days to flatten the curve, this problem's going to go away. These cockroaches are going to leave. Here we are eight months later and the problem's bigger than it's been. And we got to address it. we got to deal with it. And it may make people uncomfortable, but church, Jesus never promised us that we'd be comfortable. He promised us that we'd be holy as he is holy. He promised us that if we would follow him, he would never leave us nor forsake us. So the goal today is to address how we deal with the problem that has entered into the church, how we answer the questions as to why we are taking the actions that we at Easton Life Church are currently taking, and hopefully we will address today maybe some thoughts and fears and concerns that you have, maybe ways that you can address the questions that you are receiving. The goal today is that our faith would be strengthened and that our foundation would be solidified. But you may ask, why can't we just wait for the problem to go away? Why can't we just wait for it to go away? Why is it so important that we engage? Why must we engage socially? Why must Christians engage politically in a volatile culture that we live in today? I'll answer that with a scripture from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus was preaching, and as Jesus preached to Christians, he told them this. He says that you and I are the salt of the earth. You and I are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, he says, how is it going to again be made salty? He said, if salt loses its saltiness, if the thing that makes salt salt ceases to be salt, it's useless. It's taken up space. It is worthless, and you might as well throw it out and walk on it because it's lost its effectiveness. Church, we are commanded by Jesus Christ. It is our job and it is our Christian duty that we would purify our culture. It is our job that we preserve our culture as Christians. And it's our job that we will season our culture as salt in the world. But as we do that, we are bound to irritate our culture. If you've ever gone into the ocean with a cut on your body, you will find that cut really quickly. 
Because salt, while it is a healing agent, while it is a preserving agent, and while it is a seasoning agent, it can also be painful in its application. So we can expect today, as our culture and the church comes to an impasse, there's going to be some discomfort as we do our jobs as the church. So the question is not whether we know what our job is. We know what our job is because it's in the Bible. The question is, will we do it or will we be silent and hope somebody else does? Church, we are committed to doing our job as Jesus Christ has commanded it. And it is important that as we face these things, we do not remain passive and we also understand and are able to distinguish between the sources that are influencing our thought patterns and our decisions. You see, part of the problem today is not only our passivity, part of the problem is that we are hearing conflicting voices that we are giving equal weight to. You with me? The problem of conflicting influences today is greater than it's ever been because you and I have more access to information than we've ever had. And what we find today is that there are nice-looking people with nice-looking clothes and nice-sounding voices saying very nice-sounding things that are telling us that we must stop being the church because we must stop meeting together. Now, I submit to you today that if you know what the Word of God says, the church is not the church if it does not meet together. The very word church does not mean a building to which we all congregate. The word church means a called out assembly or gathering of people. We are the church because we are together. We are the church because we are unified. We are the church because we do speak with one voice and we do hear from one voice. But when we are separated and we are hearing from multiple conflicting voices, we're no longer the church. We're like non-salty salt. And that's not what we're called to be. So today we're going to talk about this, and we're going to talk about it, not from my opinion, because my opinion doesn't mean much, but we're going to see what the Word of God says. How can we know that the voices that we're listening to are trustworthy, are honest, and are motivated by the same morality and goodness that you and I are motivated by? When a nice-looking politician tells us that if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, the church must stop meeting, how do we know that we can't or can or should or shouldn't trust that? How do we know? How can we identify the truth? As we scroll Facebook and as we scroll Twitter, which I wouldn't recommend either right now, to be honest with you, but I know we're going to do it anyway. As we do it, it's important that we can distinguish the truth from the lie. You with me? we got to be able to distinguish it, and we can only do that if we know what the Word of God says. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Because in this chapter, Paul is writing to a church much like ours. Paul is writing to a church who is dealing with a newfound faith and joy in Jesus Christ, but also facing a government that is opposed to them. The Christians that are being written to in Romans chapter 1 are Christians that are both excited about Jesus, but also concerned about the government's overreach into their religious freedom. We can relate to them today. In fact, I would say for these Christians written about in Romans chapter 1, it was far worse than what we have it right now. I can't tell you what 2021 and 2022 will look like for the church in America, but I can tell you that whatever we go through, we will not be the first Christians to ever go through it. Paul is writing to Christians who... We're dealing with it in that day. And Paul wrote to them in Romans chapter 1 specifically to help them identify the voices of truth from the voices of error. 
He helped them to see the difference between the truth and the lie. Paul wrote to them about the world in Romans chapter 1, and he wrote to them to tell them how they can know whether or not their sources were trustworthy. When they speak, do we listen? And how do we listen? And how do we respond? How do we know that what we're hearing is from the truth? Listen to what Paul says about the secular world and the non-Christians of the day in which he wrote. And see if it reminds you of today. He said in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Church, we must understand, number one, there is enough evidence in the world to point anybody to the reality that there is a good and holy God who created us. And anybody with two sets of eyes and a fully functioning brain can look at the natural created order And understand that if there is a good God who created us, we are then accountable to that God for our behavior. That can be known from simply seeing the world. You don't have to have a preacher to understand these things. Look what happens. People see it, and they know in their minds what the truth is, but look what they do. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. It says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Here's what this means. In that day and in this day, there are people... Whether or not they were born in a Christian home, whether or not they had a church like Eastland, whether or not they had people who were giving the gospel to them as they grew up, what this says is that anybody can go out into the world, know that there is a God, know that God created them, know that they are accountable to that God, and thus make the decision whether or not they will seek that God. The choice that everybody has is whether we will seek God or suppress God. Everybody makes that choice. And in that day and in this day, there are people who have made the choice to suppress what they know about God to be true so that they can then pursue not his kingdom but their kingdom. Remember when Jesus taught the church to pray? And he said, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he said, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't say pray that as long as his will is going to be easy and comfortable and convenient. He just says when you're a Christian, you stop thinking about your will and your kingdom and you start thinking about his will and his kingdom. But the world who is opposed to the church right now is not concerned about his will and his kingdom. They are concerned about their will and their kingdom. They are opposed to one another. And because this decision has been made, because the gauntlet has been laid down in culture, Because man has made the decision not to worship God as creator, but to instead turn their attention to the kingdoms of this world, even if only for a temporary time, God responds. And God responds like this. When this happens, it says that God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is what happens when people say no to God. God turns them over. It's kind of like this. If your child 
over and over and over again rebels, you can do everything in your power to help them make better decisions. And maybe some of you have been there. My children are still young. I haven't faced this yet, thank goodness, and I pray that I don't. But if you've ever had a wayward child who was insistent upon doing things that you knew were harmful to them, there may come a point in which the only thing you can do to help them is to simply let them make their mistakes so that they can see the error of their ways. You with me? There may come a time in which you just have to take your hands off and say, listen, I've told you everything I can tell you. I've tried to help you every way I know to help you. You're going to have to make this decision on your own. And what comes of it is going to come of it. It's a scary reality to think that God treats us in much the same way. We can make the decision over and over to suppress the truth about God, and eventually God's going to say, listen, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And when God does that, the restraint on the human mind is now pulled off so that the human mind can go after whatever thing it wants. And church, the thing that the human mind, apart from the restraining grace of God, wants is sexual freedom. That's what it wants. And the Bible says that when God turned them over, that's what they got. They went straight after illicit sexual freedom they degraded their bodies with one another verse 25 but it gets worse it says when they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who's forever praised amen here's what happened verse 26 it says God gave them over to shameful lust even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones in the same way, the men also did this. They abandoned natural relations with women, and they were inflamed with lust for one another. And these men committed shameful acts with other men, and they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sexual freedom became the inflamed pursuit of the non-Christian life in Romans chapter 1 as it is today. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 28... It says, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would not do what ought to be done, they became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, but they approve of those who practice them. The problem with the lie is that once it's accepted, it drives us further and further into the lie. And those who have bought into the lie are not happy to simply seek after it on their own. They want to take others with them. The Bible says that these people who because they have rejected God and have been given over to their sinful lust, these people who are now promoting sexual freedom and the pursuit of sexual freedom are going to try to bring people along with them to engage in the same thing. And it results in death. The Bible says that when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. Those who have made this decision and are pushing this agenda are not only headed for death themselves, but they are keen to bring you and me along with them on the way. Now let me ask you, are you, will are you willing to listen to such people? When such a person who has been content to say no to God and yes to sexual freedom... When a person who the Bible says has become insolent, has become unloving, has become wicked, has become slanderous, has become gossipy, when such a person stands before you and wants to give you advice on how to practice your religion, are you keen to listen to that person? We are not. 
and I am not. There is one source of truth that I wish to hear from, and that would be the Holy Spirit of God revealed through the Holy Word of God. That's the truth that we're going to get, and that's the source we're going to get it from. Now, you may ask, why does it matter that the promotion of sexual freedom is the trademark of the lie? Why does that matter? So we can identify from Romans chapter 1. All right, the people who are out there promoting sexual freedom, the people who are out there pushing a homosexual and transgender agenda, the people that are doing that, why does it matter that the Bible defines them in this way? It matters because more than half of our government today is promoting sexual freedom and legislating for it and pushing that agenda. And it matters because within 30 days there's a possibility, and we pray against it, but there's a possibility that the people who are promoting and legislating for sexual freedom, who are headed for death and are ready to take others with them, perhaps an entire culture, it matters because within 30 days it is possible that they would have control of the House, the Senate, and the executive branch of our government. And in doing so, some of the restraints that we've been fortunate to have over the years to slow down this onslaught, this oncoming train of debauchery in our culture, those restraints may be pulled off. Now, I know this may make people uncomfortable, but we need to understand the truth because this world and this state and this community is filled with Christians who love the Lord Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They love the Word of God. They love their neighbor, but they're listening to the person who's promoting sexual freedom tell them that you should not practice religion in these ways, and we're listening to it. It is a conflicting, dangerous viewpoint. Now, why does it matter? Let me tell you why it matters. It matters not only for the soul of individuals and for the soul of our nation, but it also matters because history has shown us that this is a dangerous precipice that we now rest upon as a culture. There was a book written in the year 1934. Pastor Brian was really young when it came out, but he probably still remembers. In 1934, it was a book called Sex and Culture by an anthropologist named J.D. Unwin, U-N-W-I-N. Look it up. J.D. Unwin, Unwin, not Onion. J.D. Onion was a different dude. I had that one coming. J.D. Unwin was a non-Christian. And in fact, when he wrote this book, he implicitly and explicitly explained that he was not looking for moral truth. He was not seeking to fulfill an agenda. He was not looking to give Christians like me ammunition in a cultural war. He was simply, as a non-Christian, going to the data and seeing what the data said. And this anthropologist, it's a person who studies human behavior and the effect that human behavior has upon cultures throughout history. He went back and he looked at 86 different cultures in human history. 86 cultures who had come and they had gone. The Greeks, the Romans, all the empires previous. And he wanted to know, what is it that could take a nation or a culture who had achieved worldwide domination and control and power, what is it that tore them down? How is it that America, a country founded on biblical principles, could go from a position of power and authority and come to the place where it could fall? 86 cultures, 86 out of 86, 100% of them listen to what he says. 
He says in his book, and I'm going to paraphrase it for you because it was written in 1934 English, so it sounds different. But what he said was this. Of these 86 cultures that he studied, they reached their peak of power when the universal truth of the culture was that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And sex was abstained before marriage, and sex was abstained from anybody else during marriage. And as long as those sexual norms were held to within those cultures, they maintained their power and even grew. But what he said was, in 86 of those cultures that he studied, all 86 of them, when the culture abandoned sexual fidelity, and the culture began to pursue sexual freedom outside of biblical monogamy, within one generation the culture would die. Within one generation, the culture would die. What is it that took down all the previous cultures just like ours? It was the pursuit of sexual freedom. It was the believing the lie and going after it. Today, we understand that the promotion of sexual freedom is death not only for the individual, but for the culture who pursues it. It's death for the culture who pursues it. I want to make you aware of something you probably already know. In the 1960s, America went through something called the sexual revolution. And from the sexual revolution, agendas were pushed to move America from the old-fashioned biblical model of one man and one woman in marriage to basically anything you want. It began as homosexual rights, and it has grown from there. Sexual freedom since the 1960s has been the agenda of one of the legislative and political parties in our country. They have pushed this agenda for 60 years now. 60 years, I might remind you, is almost two full generations removed from the pursuit of the lie. America and our culture is on the clock. We are on the clock. We have already made it longer than most other cultures in history have made it when they as cultures have made the decisions that you and I are making today. Now what does all this have to do with COVID and what does all this have to do with how we as Christians in the church respond to it? I'll get right to the point and I'll explain it to you. I will not receive, and we as the elders at Eastland Life Church will not receive religious advice on how to practice our religion freely from a person or a political party who has made it their goal to promote and to legislate for sexual freedom in our country because we believe based on the word of God and on the study of human history that they are pushing us not towards public health and safety but they are pushing our country off of a moral cliff for which we will not recover from and we will not take advice from them how can we distinguish whether or not what we're being told is true? We can distinguish it by asking whether or not the person telling us these things is trustworthy. If your spouse tells you that they love you, but they are repeatedly unfaithful to you, let me ask you, what matters more to you? Is it what they say or is it what they do? What matters to you is what they do. See, nobody wants lip service. Nobody wants to be told one thing and then demonstrated another. The same people that are telling us that our churches and our small businesses must close in the interest of public safety are the same people who are pushing the sexual liberation agenda, which has destroyed 86 out of 86 cultures previous to us and will destroy us as well. We don't believe they're trustworthy, and we definitely do not believe they are trustworthy sources of information on how to practice our religious freedom. Therefore, we will not 
adhere to any policy pushed forward that tells us that we may no longer gather and practice our religion. We have to identify the trademarks. The trademarks of a person who has adopted the lie is the promotion of sexual freedom. We got that, right? Hopefully we've driven that point home today. But I want to go a step further. I want to go a step further because I want to recognize this morning for everybody who's here today and for those who are listening online that public health in our world right now is a concern. Amen? We are not pandemic deniers. We do not deny that this pandemic has not only ravaged many communities, but it has resulted in the death of many people. It is concerning. It is something that should be taken seriously. It is something to be considered. It is something to think about as we operate in our day-to-day lives. In fact, I would say as Christians, if we simply ignore it and pretend it's not there, that's a lie that we would be adopting. So we're not going so far as to say that. But what I will say is this. When we're being told that the actions that are being taken in our country today are about our health, I want us to consider a few things. Can we look at a few things? I want to look at a few things. In the year 2019, 480,000 people died in America. Not from COVID-19, not from the flu, not from any pandemic. But 480,000 people died from the effects of cigarette smoke. Either as smokers themselves or as those on the receiving end of secondhand smoke. 480,000. Substantially more than the number of people this year who have perished due to COVID. Now let me ask you. If it's easy enough to outlaw smoking so that we can save the lives of almost 500,000 people... And our governing agencies and bodies are primarily concerned with public health and safety. Why is it you think that we continue to allow it? We allow it because in the year 2019, $12.6 billion was fed into the federal government's pockets out of cigarette taxes. 480,000 people died, but it generated $12.6 billion, therefore we ignore it. It's not a public health concern. In the year 2019... 95,000 people died from alcohol-related causes. 95,000. So we're now over half a million people in 2019 dying from the consumption of dangerous substances. Why, you ask, do we not address this with legislation? I would argue the reason we don't address it is because the government wants to continue to receive the $10 billion a year it receives from the sale and consumption of alcohol. Public health is not the primary concern. It's about freedom. We don't want to tell people what to do and what not to do. We don't want to tell people what not to drink and what not to smoke. That's their choice. That's their right. That's their freedom. Religion, we'll control that. Small businesses earning a living, we'll shut that down for the health and public safety of our country. But if it's going to cost us something, we'll stick to freedom. In the year 2017... 862,230 infants were slaughtered in America. 862,230 innocent children lost their lives. Since Roe v. Wade was codified into law, 69 million infants have been slaughtered. And this does not include marriage or pregnancies that were ending in miscarriages. 
These are simply choices to kill the children. Out of a concern for personal freedom and sexual freedom. But I would also submit to you that in the year 2017, the federal government received $562 million from Medicaid as reimbursement for the services of these abortions. Church, we accept and believe and take seriously the pandemic that's happening in our country. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. And as people get sick, we pray for the sick and we minister to the sick. And we even take steps to avoid the sickness ourselves. But we also believe that the same government that tells us that smoking, alcohol, and abortions are necessary public freedoms, but the exercise of free religion and the exercise of small business are not, we believe that there's an intellectual dishonesty happening there. And we don't receive it. And I would encourage you today, if you are allowing political figures to keep you from practicing the religion and the faith that we've been given through Jesus Christ that has transformed not only your life but perhaps your family and your children, we must ask ourselves, is public safety and health really the driving influence for these people or is it the pursuit of an agenda that will only use this to their advantage when it is convenient for them? I'm not asking you to change your opinion. I'm asking you to look at Romans chapter 1 and to look at the stats from last year's United States budget. There it's black and white in both instances. Are we being unloving when we meet together as the church? I would submit to you not only are we being unloving, but we are being faithful to a God who has perfectly loved us while we were yet sinners. And had we not met, there are 20 people who are now alive in Jesus Christ who may still be dead in their sins and in their trespasses had we acquiesced to a government that was content to let 69 million infants die but would shut the church down because 350,000 people have died. I know how uncomfortable this is. What's more uncomfortable is the idea that Christians would not stand up and fight for their freedom in the face of such hypocrisy. That's more uncomfortable. Our culture is on the clock. So what do we do? How do we respond? I'll make this quick. But Before I do it, I want to show you something. This is a quote from Pastor Dwight D. Eisenhower, pastor, not exactly a pastor, he was more of a president. <laughs> president Dwight D. Eisenhower gave a speech on March 6, 1956. Look what he said. He said, if a political party does not have its foundation in the determination to advance a cause that is right and that is moral, it is not a political party, it is merely a conspiracy to seize power. It's not the Bible, it's not a preacher, it's a president. Four years before the beginning of the sexual revolution. So what do we do? How do we respond? I would say number one, and we'd be remiss if we didn't go here, is we look to Jesus and we point this dead culture to a living Jesus. Amen. As they die, he lives and reigns. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4 says it this way. says, we do not lose heart. Church, now is not the time to be passive. Now is not the time to be confused over the conflicting voices speaking into us. And now is not the time to become discouraged and fearful over what's happening in our world. We do not lose heart. Because even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, COVID will pass. America eventually will pass. Jesus Christ will still be on his throne. The church will never go away. And when Jesus Christ returns for his church, he will institute an eternal rule on the new earth that he is bringing before us. And when he does it, we will look back to the year 2020 and say, man, if we only knew and we only could see what God was doing, we would not have let the light momentary affliction of 2020 keep us from understanding and living in the weight of glory that was to be coming for us. But we must look to the unseen and not to the seen. We must look to the unseen and not to the seen. We fix our eyes on Jesus and we point this culture to Jesus. Number two, we put an end to social passivity. This one's been difficult for me this year. I don't like conflict. In fact, studies show that my generation overwhelmingly is passive. When it comes to conflict, we prefer to avoid it. However, in light of what's going on in the world, I think it's clear that we no longer have the freedom to be silent. In fact, it says in the book of Acts that when the disciples, at this point called the apostles, had been flogged in the public square for preaching the gospel, it says that they not only considered it an honor to be punished for the preaching of God's word, but they could not help but to speak what Jesus Christ had done for them. It cost them something, but they had to continue speaking. Their role in the social eye could not diminish in that day, and it must not diminish in ours today. One of the problems that we're facing is that those who are pushing the lie upon our culture are very vocal about it. They have a gospel that they believe, and they are unashamed of their gospel. Because they believe that their gospel is the power that they need. They are vocal. If we are not vocal, there will only be one voice speaking. Church, the silent majority that we depended on and that many people put their faith and hope in, number one is no longer the majority and now has no longer any reason to remain silent. Number three, we become people of prayer. We become people of prayer. We cannot neglect prayer. And as we prepare ourselves to speak more boldly about what we know to be true and what we also know to be a lie, I would argue that it is important that for every one word we speak in public, we should be speaking five to ten words with God in private prayer. We are people of prayer because we believe that prayer works, and we believe that prayer works because the Bible says that prayer works. Amen? 
We are people of prayer because we know that those who have traded the truth of God for a lie are not going to have their mind changed by some small town preacher. We don't have the power to change their minds, but the same God who had the power to take his hands off of them as they pursued sin is the same God who can come back and convict them of that same sin. And in conviction of that sin, while we speak loudly about what we know to be true in God's word, as we speak and as God convicts, people are changed. The power of the gospel is still alive today. But it happens only when we speak and it happens only when we pray. Nobody has been saved apart from the speaking of the gospel and the prayer of at least one believer. Finally, we become people of the word. Look at Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. The prophet Hosea said to Israel, said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. Sounds like that one generation away type thing. Church, as we move forward, it's important that we speak. It's important that we pray. But it's also important that as we speak and as we pray, we know what we're speaking about and we know who we're speaking to. And we can do neither if we don't know what the Word of God says. Amen? As we talk to fellow Christians about the importance of continuing to meet even in the face of heavy consequences, it is important that we not only share our opinions, but that we hide our opinions behind the Word of God. Because only the word of God has the power to transform. Only the word of God has the power to fully convict and to fully convince. But the word of God will not have that power if we're silent, if we're passive, or if we don't know it well enough to speak it. So it is incumbent upon us as Christians that we speak, that we pray, but that we do it all for the glory of God from the word of God. Because the word of God is sufficient, it's sustainable, and it's eternal. It'll do what God needs it to do, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 16. Y'all received the word today?